If you've been here any time at all, you know that I am uh, prone to preach two messages. One, the intended, and one that just seems to strike me as we sing. And this message struck me. It comes from private worship and study this week and thought about my own life and thought about you as a church and our people in general in the Christian faith. And I'm, I'm studying several passages. One thing I would encourage you to do is read through the Bible. It's an amazing experience. Um, I've done it now several years um, and read through it succinctly, just straight through. Um, you don't have to stop and even study. Just read. Just read it. Just fill your mind with it. Um, you know, one, one, there's a lot of plans out there. The, the plan that I take is, I think, the simplest plan. And that is to read, beginning, if you started today, Genesis 1, Ezekiel 1, and John, I mean, Matthew chapter 1. And the next day, read Genesis 2, Ezekiel 2, and Matthew chapter 2. And do that every day, one chapter from each of those sections. By the end of the year, you'll read the Old Testament, and you'll read the New Testament twice. And so... You'll get a variety. You won't get bogged down in those Levitical passages and in the progression of God's people through uh, the covenant and those things. But yet you'll get a picture of those things and it'll be an encouragement to your soul. But I'm also studying, among other things, Romans because it is foundational. It is, in reality, I guess I've been in study of this book since I was 18. Uh, systematically now, though, I am studying it. Romans 6 is almost unbearable. Um, when you finish studying Romans 6, you're wasted. I mean, Romans 1, 2, and 3 convicts you. There's no question when you finish studying that, no matter if you're a good person, bad person, heathen, lived in church all your life, you feel like I'm the worst. I'm, I'm, that's it. I'm, I'm done. have no hope. And then Paul, I guess because he's a great thinker and, of course, inspired of the Spirit, he kind of, he lets up a little. You know, Romans 4 brings this powerful picture of Abraham, who is our father through the faith. And so, you you kind of wipe your brow. All right. You know, that hope in the darkness, you know. Romans 5, same thing. He loved us when we couldn't love him. He died for us when we wouldn't even die for each other. He died for us. Powerful. Then he says, okay, you've had enough break. Now we'll get back in the hard stuff. Romans 5, verse 12, he starts in on Adam and Christ. And boy, it just perplexes you. And so you end with this question in Romans 5. So Paul, should we just go out and be sinners to the max so that grace can abound? And his answer, by no means. Or let it never be. Or certainly not. Or no, 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 as my grandmother would say. You know, don't get confused here. I'm not saying go be a sinner. You are a sinner, is his point. You are a sinner. You don't have to try. I don't have to try. We are that by nature. Then in Romans 6, he says, you've been baptized into Christ. You've died to your old man. You've made alive in Christ. And, And you start to feel this sense of oneness. And then he breaks off into this impossible standard in Romans 6. You get done with Romans 6, you think, I'm not a Christian. 
If that's what it means to be in Christ, I ain't in Him. And then Romans 7. Struggle. This inner inner battle Paul describes. I want to do this. I don't do it. I don't want to do this. I do it all the time. Oh, wretched man that I am. You know? How will I ever be what I need to be? And he says, thanks be to God who in Christ, this key in Christ, has done this for me. He's done it. And then the powerful relief of Romans 8, it's like taking in a gulp of fresh air. Some of the college students have been studying Romans 8 for a while. How does it start out? Verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm studying Romans 8 right now. Moved to tears this week over Romans 8. You know why? Because Romans 8 says, you can't do it, but the Spirit of God can. You can't do it, Jesus did it. You can't do it. Therefore, in you, He is doing it. In your behalf. So it's an amazing truth. And I, I thought, where have I heard that before? Listen to this verse in Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7. Jesus never been born yet on the earth. And yet, listen to what the prophet says in Micah 7. Verse 7, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. That sounds like a man who understands Romans 8. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Do you hear verse 7? Paul saying, I can't do it, God. I can't do it. I'm a wretched man. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light in me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case. When you do not know how to pray, the Spirit of God utters things that you cannot even understand for you. He will plead my case, Micah said. He doesn't stop. And execute judgment for me. Not on me. For me. It's interesting, isn't it, for the Old Testament guy to understand that God isn't executing judgment on him. He's a sinner and yet God's not. That would be the right word. God, He hears my case. I plead. He does it on me. Condemnation. I'm a sinner. He just said I'm a sinner. What, what is this for me? The promise has been the same from Adam till today. And that is that Jesus Christ bears the condemnation of His people. He will execute judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. Jesus Christ's vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of walls. He launches off into this thing about building walls. Okay, so there's hope for Jews. Micah's a Jew. There's hope for Jews, right? 
Listen to what Micah says. A day for building the walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from the Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. They will come to you from all the nations of the earth and they will see their salvation and they will be saved because there is therefore now no condemnation on those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He has executed judgment for me. On to His Son instead of on to me. We sing and we pray and we live as if we are trying to earn the approval of God. And, and, and above all else, He would say it's not necessary. It's not necessary. My approval of you has been bought by the blood of my Son. And so therefore you are approved. Don't earn it. You're not trying to be like Him. You are in Him. And you are therefore under no condemnation and therefore free to live because the Son has set you free. And now by the Spirit in us, we obey the law. We do the things of the law. That's the Christian life. What the law could not do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did in His Son, Jesus Christ. How did He do it in His Son? His Son obeyed the law without fail on our behalf and executed judgment for us in His flesh on our sin. And therefore, the law is fulfilled in Christ. The condemnation is passed on Christ and we are free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Free. And yet when we gather and when we live our lives and when we walk in the world, do they see us as free people or as shackled to the law? Do they see us as free in Christ or do they see us as dead in the law? And that's really the message of Jesus in John chapter 4. There is always a segue into what I really need to preach about. John chapter 4, Jesus is doing this expanding of the walls. Remember, he's on an intentional mission, mission intentional, to reach the world. They're going to proclaim it at the end of our passage. He is the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. All people from all nations, Assyria and Egypt and as far as the river and all over the world, they're going to come to him. And so we've talked through this intentional desire of Christ to go to those not like him. And break down the barriers by the gospel. And we have seen that He offers to them real needs met. Not just felt needs. He doesn't just go on some mercy ministry where He feeds and clothes the people that need feed and clothing. He goes to meet their real need, which is they need Him. That's that's His primary mission in life, Jesus, was to bring them to the Father. Right? And in... As a byproduct, he clothed and he fed and he healed and he did all those other things. But that was a byproduct of the real need being met. And so now we move in and we see, okay, he intentionally went to people not like him. Then he met real needs. And now we see mission intentional evangelism 
True worship is evangelism's ultimate purpose. We talk about ultimate and, you know, what does that mean? I've said it before. Ultimate means that in the end, that's what it's all about. We're not in the ministry of evangelism. We're not reaching the world for the sake of reaching the world. that's That's not what it's about. To be honest with you, and to be honest with myself, it really isn't about us. It is about God Almighty and Him being worshipped. That's what it's about. God is seeking people not to pull them out of hell. That's not what He's trying to primarily do, though that is a byproduct of it. It's not that God is seeking somebody to have a relationship with primarily. That, that does happen. But He has perfect relationship without His creatures. God is about His own glory and reaching people to worship Him for all of eternity. And the best way to do that is through broken vessels like me and you. And so if we get intentional and we go into this lost world and find those like us and not like us and preach the gospel, I'm confident that the walls will be expanded, as Micah said, and people will come from every nation, from all the earth, to Him, and He will hear their voice and He will save them. And they will be saved by the power of the gospel, by the power of Jesus Christ for the glory of God so that He might be worshipped by all people. That, that's the purpose, right? We, we've got it backwards in our day, haven't we? We have put in the primary focus our needs. That's not the primary focus of the Bible. It's not the primary focus. We worry more about, this is my problem, we worry more about our hurts and our wants and our failures than we do about the glory of our Father. And Jesus worried not any about those things and worried about His Father's glory. That was His single mission. You're going to see that in John over and over again. I've come to fulfill my Father's command. And that is to bring Him glory. That's it in John 17. I've done it, Lord. I've brought You glory. Father. Isn't that what he said at the end of his life, right before he dies? It's finished. I've brought you the glory that you sought. Nothing about all this byproduct. The main thing stayed the main thing. And so in evangelism, we need to seek in our hearts to find that worship is ultimate here. In our endeavor to reach lost people, we should never forget that they are dying without Christ and reaching a real eternal hell. That is a truth. But it is secondary to the truth that they will, and what makes hell, hell, is they will not worship Him for all of eternity. That's hell. The reality is, they are living in hell now. Not that they're one day going to go to hell. But if you're here without Christ today, you're in hell. You're there now. But for His grace, common grace, that holds you with His hand, you'd be there Literally, in the fire today. But you're there now, relationally, because you're not with Him. And you're not worshiping Him. Our evangelism must seek to convict of sin, call to repentance, and here's the key, convince them to worship God. Convince them to worship God. That's what we hold before them. And that's what Jesus held before this woman in 16 through 26. Jesus confronted the woman with the wound of her heart so that He could then turn her eyes to her need for the true worship of Him. Sin is like leprosy. 
ever wonder why Jesus and why the Bible focuses in on leprosy? I'm not talking about just in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Naaman, and we're going to talk about Naaman a little bit later. Leprosy, it's like this terrible disease, right? Do you know what leprosy is? Do you know that developed countries have no leprosy? We don't have it. It doesn't exist. You ever thought why? It's not a virus. It's not. It's not. It's not caused by like AIDS or pneumonia from something. It's, it is the fact that people harm themselves and then that becomes infected to the point that the flesh and the senses die. You know, they might commonly get a blister and continue to get a blister and continue to get the blister and it goes deep and deeper and deeper until it infects them and their flesh rots, basically. That's leprosy. And now they're maimed, their hand might come off or you see it in the undeveloped countries all the time. Their foot might be this big around. And people didn't know what it was. They were scared of death. You'd be scared of it too. There's no antibiotic. There's nothing. You see these people walking around with ulcerated sores all over them, bleeding and all this. And you'd say, we don't want them at our table. Put them somewhere else. That might catch, you know. But it wasn't, you couldn't catch it. It was self-inflicted. I believe it is the picture of sin. It's the picture of sin. It's why it's focused on over and over again in the Bible, all kinds of maladies. But leprosy continues to come up and come up and come up again and again and again. It's the dulling of the sense. They couldn't feel it anymore. I've been told, I have not seen this, but I've been told and read in articles. I read of this one man who dropped his potato into the fire, reached in with his hand, pulled the potato out of the fire, and never winced. He had leprosy. His hand had no feeling at all. Could have sat it there and burned it. He'd have never known. Sin does the same thing. Unconfessed sin does that in my heart and in your heart every day. It desynthesizes us to how holy God is and how sinful we are. And we move the boundaries. And so Jesus comes to this lady. Remember, he's having this conversation with her about living water. And she's focused on physical things. He's focused on spiritual things. And then he hits her. He shocks her. Shock value. Jesus says, go get your husband. He went to her heart. He went to her womb. He struck at an ulcerated sore in her life. Her rejection by men. She's used up. She's useless. She's dirty. She's a leper. And Jesus sticks his finger in the ulcer of her leprosy and says, Go get your husband. And what he does is he cuts into the live flesh. Her response is not a cover up. Her response is all she can muster. I don't have a husband. I have a husband. She was like, (laughs) she was like a participant of the ancient Mardi Gras. She was full of sin and she covered it with a mask. 
so that nobody could see it on the outside. I propose when she came to that well to draw water, nobody on the outside would have ever known. So there was no clue for Jesus externally. But he could see her heart. Remember in John 10, he knew what was in every man's heart. He knew what was in Nicodemus' heart. He knew what was in her heart. And he didn't run from her sin. He poked his finger in it. And he dug in to the deep place of her flesh in the heart and said, Get your husband. Bring him here. Hebrews 4 says the Word of God does that, doesn't it? You ever been sharing the gospel? Maybe here recently you've shared the gospel. Everything's going fine, and then you start quoting or reading scripture, and uneasiness settles in. You know why? Because the finger of Jesus is going deep into the flesh, all the way to the heart, all the way to the bone and the marrow even. And conviction is there. That's a purpose of evangelism. Conviction. Paul said that's what the law was about. It showed us our failure. Didn't offer us any hope, but it showed us our failure. John 3.20, Jesus says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus was exposing her, her deeds. He laid her open. He cut her to the quick. And he said, bring your husband. Jesus even exposes the deepest wickedness in her heart. He does, he's not content to just stop. He goes even deeper. He says, you're right. You have five husbands. And you're living with a man now. He, he, he ain't your husband. Well, that's what he would have said if he was from the South. Ain't. He didn't really say that. He ain't your husband. Which, by the way, not my message. Side point. Rabbit trail. Sex does not equal marriage. Don't ever let anybody fool you into believing that. Marriage has always been a covenant relationship. It's not a casual encounter. It's a covenant relationship. Just because you sleep with somebody doesn't mean they're your husband or wife. That's what makes unmarried sexual activity so profane to God. You've taken His relationship and abused it, sold it. And so Jesus says, that guy you're sleeping with right now, in our lingo, that guy you're shacking with, he ain't your husband. Jesus poked and then He poked farther. Wasn't enough just to get it going a little. He went all the way to the bottom. We're afraid of that, aren't we? When I go share the gospel, I want to stay away from that and stay general. I want to stay out here on the periphery of life, talk about big general concepts. I don't want to get serious with people. It hurts. It's dangerous. And I'm afraid of what they may say if I say, you know that drug addiction you have? That really is a outward sign of an inward problem and the inward problem is whatever it is I mean you you don't have any body that you think loves you so you turn to that you know those extramarital affairs you're having that's about you not feeling accepted that's not about you being the man or being the woman that's about your need for Jesus Christ 
insert the scripture and go to the heart. That's what Jesus does. He goes to the heart. And the wound of her immorality is only the entrance, the portal, by the way, into her heart. He's not going to stay there. When a, when a person falls under conviction, they'll give us an answer a lot like what the woman does. Look in 21 through 24. If somebody starts telling you about your sin, is it logical to start talking about a debate that's gone on for centuries about whether we should worship on in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerasene? I mean, is that is that logical? That we were we were tracking along here in this logical conversation. Conviction hit and they got illogical all of a sudden. That happens. I mean, you'll be sharing the gospel and you'll get down to the meat of it and it starts hitting them where they live and they'll say, where do you go to church? Oh, we're not talking about that, are we? But it's just, it's, it's just the response of the, of the human. When we get under pressure, get backed in a corner, we got to go somewhere. <clears throat> we got to do something. So she tries to do that. She, she runs to an illogical argument about, and, and a centuries old, by the way, argument between the Samaritans and the Jews. You, I perceive you're a prophet. So, but, which amazes me. She thinks he's a prophet. He just got, I mean, the prophets in the Old Testament did tell about sin in, in the camp, okay? But rarely, if, if I'm trying to rack my brain, if ever did they get this specific. I mean, Nathan was specific with David. Okay? He was. But most prophets just stayed general. Then Jesus went all the way down to five husbands. You've got five of them. Not one, not two, not three, not four. Five. And the guy you're sleeping with now, he's not your husband. That's more than a prophet. If I've ever seen one. That guy knows me. Inside and out. And so Jesus, after the conviction he puts on her, she tries to run. And she goes into this debate about where to worship. Our evangelism must seek to convict them of sin, call them to repentance. Catch this, convince them to truly worship God. That's where he goes. He forgets adultery. See, we stay in adultery. We keep pounding them about their sin. Beating them up. Making them feel bad. Jesus doesn't do that. He uses that as a portal into her heart. When he gets into her heart, he then transitions to worship. He says, your problem is not how many husbands you have. The problem is you don't know God and you're not worshiping him. The problem for some of you is you're going to die not being an adulterer. You're going to die never having worshiped God. The problem is you're going to die righteous to the outward world and corrupt on the inside. Leprous in the soul. And so Jesus goes into this discussion with her. She wants to go talk about worship. So what does Jesus do? He obliges. He obliges. He says, believe me, the day's coming and it's here now. You won't go to Jerusalem or on that mountain in worship. But what? He changes it on her, right? You won't go to either of those places. Salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Flips the script. He goes somewhere she wasn't. She thought she was getting away and he just rounded her back in. Our evangelism should be ultimately focused on the worship of God through Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what we want to do is not beat people to death 
about being sinners. They know that. I know that. And they need to be revealed that by the Spirit through the Word. Don't misunderstand me. You need to poke the finger of the Word into their flesh. But when you get it there, don't waller it around and just continue to try to beat them to death and pound them. When you get in there or the Spirit gets in there and you see it and you feel it and you know this is where it's going, turn into worship. Turn into worship. That's called a repentance. She knows she can't come to God and worship Him. She knows that much because she's unholy. And so what he's saying is you need to repent and you need to come and worship in spirit and truth. Not in Gerizim and not in Jerusalem, but in spirit and truth. The word he uses here, he has two words he could use. One is latruo, which means service. That word is used for worship in the New Testament more than the word Jesus uses, which is uh, which is a word that means to bow, to prostrate oneself, to kiss the hand. Proskuneo is the word he uses, and that word means like a, the word picture is like a dog licking the hand of a king. It's the word picture. You need to lick the hand of God, he says to her. You're a dog? Yes. Lick the hand of God. Worship God. You're a dog. The Jews are dogs. Everyone's a dog. Everyone's a dog. Now prostrate yourself before me. Fall down and worship me. In spirit and truth. Jesus places value on how and whom we worship instead of where we worship. Uh, This, my last bunny trail, I promise. Why do we use these terms like sanctuary and the like about our buildings? Why do we do that? How many of you grew up, now some parents are going to kill me over this. How many of you grew up where you got whipped for running in the church? Me, I did. I got beat a lot (laughs) for that. (laughs) I beat for a lot of things. I beat for that a lot too. Did they ever say, it's God's house, don't run in it? Bad theology. You don't run in church just like you don't run in a restaurant or don't run anywhere else that's a gathering place of people because you might run over somebody. Or you might run into them or you might cause harm to them, but this place is no more sacred than any other building. It's a building really is. And when we fall in the trap of calling this God's house, we fall into the trap that this woman's in. Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim? Places of worship. Jesus said, forget places. How are you worshiping? Whom are you worshiping? How and whom? That's really the question. How do you worship? Worship in spirit and truth. He gives the answer. Spirit, this word that we see here, is a significant word. It talks about the... the um, let me find it here. Make sure I get it right. Spirit is the reference to the Holy Spirit. is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. It is a reference to the internal spirit of man. The seat of rational thought. That's what spirit means here. Pneuma. It refers to the seat of rational, willful thought. 
Some have wrongly interpreted this to be the Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Neither is he talking about emotionalism or charismatic chaos, as John MacArthur likes to call it. He's not talking about getting spiritual and super spiritual and all those things. He's talking about the seat of your personhood, your will, your rational soul, your affections. Now we're talking about right terms, your affections. And truth. And truth. Which is Him, He is truth, and His Word is truth. So we need two things to worship. We need a spirit, and we need His Word, and Him in His Word. We need those two things to worship God rightly. And God's looking for people to worship Him in this way. Jesus presents an exclusive way to worship. It's exclusive. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. He says salvation is of the Jews. Do you see it in the text? That means there's only one religion. It is the one God established. And it is of the Jews. It's not Samaritan. You're in a cult. You need to get out. That's what Jesus is saying. The, the picture for Jesus is that we worship in spirit and truth, and that is established by God. So that matters how we worship. It does matter how we worship. You can't come to Jesus. You can't come to God, rather. You can't come to God however you choose, by whatever prophet you choose, or by whatever process you choose. You come to God on His terms. And Jesus says it is Jewish. And it had always been this way. Old Testament tells us Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. She was a Moabite. She was not a Jew. She married a Jewish man. Her husband died. She was with her mother-in-law, Naomi, in, in, in the land of the Moabites, in her country. And the, 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 maybe the famine lifted. I'm not sure. Maybe Naomi just wants to die. I don't know. But Israel had been in a famine. And so she says, I'm leaving here and going back home, basically. I'm an old woman. I'm going home. You're released from your vows. Go marry men from your own countries. I mean, she's turned them loose. Go. You're free. Listen to what Ruth says. Listen to this. Do not urge me to leave you, to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. We get caught up in that poetic, beautiful vow and forget the order. She doesn't say your God is my God, therefore your people are my people. She says your people are my people. Now your God is my God. Ruth became a Jew. She couldn't come to God as a Moabite. She had to come to God as a Jew. She's not the only example. Naaman, the Syrian, had leprosy, was a great general, tried every method under the sun, and his servant girl said, there is a man in my home country named Elisha, a prophet who can probably heal you. So he goes down, and Elisha won't even come out to him. This great man of authority, this Gentile that can command and rule soldiers. And Elijah says, no, I'm not coming. I tell you what, tell him to dip seven times in the Jordan and go home. He'll be cleansed. And what's the king's response? I've got rivers sparkling clear in Syria. I don't need to go to that mud pit of the Jordan. What, am I, what is he saying? I don't need your people. I don't need your river. 
I don't need your soil. I don't need your God. I want healing so I can go be a Syrian. Elisha says, you can't be healed that way. There's only one way to God, and it's through the Jews. That's it. It's the only way. And so the end of that story is that Naaman dips himself, you know, no change. Six times, the seventh time he comes up and he's cleansed. And this is his response. Please let me. He goes to Elisha. He says, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth. I always thought this was weird. Give me enough earth, he says, as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Naaman took dirt home from Palestine, put it under his altar, and offered sacrifices to God. Why? Because he had to be a Jew. He became a Jewish man. He said, I won't worship any other God. And my symbol for that is I'll stand on the Holy Land and offer my sacrifices to God. God cares how we worship. He cares. Don't ever be fooled by that. Ruth was a Moabite, but she became a Jew. Naaman was a Syrian. He became a Jew. Esther was a Jew who saved her people from the Persian purge. And this is what they did after she saved them. Many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. What does that mean? The fear of the Jews is the fear of the Lord and what they feared was that they were under judgment and so they became Jews so they would be saved. Many people of all the nations were saved. They were saved as Jews. What's my point? You may be asking that. We need to become Jews? No. Paul answers that question for us, doesn't he? And it's it's interesting to me how he answers that. You are a Jew. If you're saved today, you're here today, you're worshiping the God of heaven and earth, you are a Jew. You've been circumcised in the heart. You can't come to God except through the Jews. It was that way in the Old Testament. It's that way in our day. And it will be that way throughout eternity. We are Israel. The spiritual Israel is being gathered to Christ. He is the perfect Israel. And therefore we come to Him. And in Him we are Israel. We are Jews. Like Naaman. Like Ruth. Like like Esther's. the people in Esther's day. We must come to God on His terms. You come to God and you come to Him through Christ, the Jew. Jesus makes it clear that worship should be in spirit and truth. I defined those words for you, but John Piper says it best. Let me just say what he says about this. The fuel of worship is the grand truth of a gracious and sovereign God. The fuel of worship is the truth about a sovereign God. The fire that makes the fuel burn white hot, is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth is our renewed spirit. And the resulting heat of our affections is worship, pushing its way out in tears, confessions, prayers, praises, acclamations, lifting of hands, Bowing low, licking the hand, and obedient lives.
the fuel, the kindling, he says, is there and it's the truth. The fire is the Holy Spirit. You can have all the other things. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have anything. The Holy Spirit joined to our spirits. Jesus said in John 3, 6, that which is born of the Spirit, the Spirit, capital S, is Spirit. You can't have the furnace, the Spirit, truly. You can't have that unless you have the Holy Spirit. And you might have noticed when I read the passage, I ended in verse 26, and some of you scratched your head and said, that's not what my Bible says. My Bible says, and he said to her, the one who speaks to you, is he? You know, she says, the Messiah is coming. And when he gets here, he'll tell us all these things. And the response in your English Bible is that he said to her, I am he. In the Greek, it says, he said to her, I am. I am. I want you to worship in spirit and truth. You'll have to do it to the God of the Jews. I am. I am the God of Moses, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. I am the God. If, you, if you'll be saved, I am your God. I am. Worship Him. Worship this God. Why then, I leave you with this application, this question for application. You'll have to answer it. Why are we not worshiping Him this way? Why are we coming to this place like it's duty and like we're earning His pleasure? Why? Because one of two things. We don't fully understand the grace we've been given. Or we've never been given grace. It's one of the two. This is not duty. This is celebration. When this thing ends every Sunday, it's a beginning. It's a continuation that goes through the week and draws you back to God's people to say, my heart is knit to your heart. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. And let the nations come and be glad. And let the nations come and drink from this fountain which overflows with water everlasting. And let the nations come to this man, this Israelite, and be made Jews. And let the nations come and worship before His throne. And let the nations come and sing His praise. And let the nations come and exalt Him and enthrone Him above all others as King of kings and Lord of lords. For He has been given the name which is above every name. What is the name? I am. That's the name. I am Lord. Jehovah, I am. It's one God. His name is Jesus. And the name above all names is Yahweh. Jehovah, Lord, I am. Worship Him with this truth. And worship Him with the affection of your heart. Nothing scares me more about our church than this. We know a lot. 
and we feel little. We know a lot, but we don't have the emotion that should come with that knowing. And that's death. That is death. And I'm not talking about whipping something up through manipulation. I'm talking about something that just ought to come through what? The fountain which flows. And what is the fountain? John 7, Jesus says that fountain of living water is the Holy Spirit. If He's in you, He ought to be bubbling out. Oh, not, nobody ought to have to make you want to worship. It's not duty. It's celebration. And it's in spirit. And it's in truth. Or it's not true. And therefore it's blasphemous and it will be judged. Let us worship Him. As His people, as Jews, let us worship Him. Israel being called out of the nations. I got to stop. I could, I, I, I really could, I think, I know I can never tire of these things. Just don't get tired. It's not effort, really, for me to preach to you, it's a joy. It's, it's worship. My heart overflows. And I encourage you, do that with one another this week. Do that with people at work this week. And you talking about mission evangelism, that's it. When they see us worshiping spirit and truth, they'll be drawn like, like, uh, like uh, moths are to a flame. All those who will believe will come and they will believe and be saved. He won't lose one of his children. He will not miss any of the elect of Israel. None of them, whatever nation they come from. Let the nations be glad. Let's pray. Father, we can't exhaust this great truth. Thank you that you showed us this picture through a Samaritan woman. A dog. An adulterous, sinful dog. And yet you said to her that she could have water in her, living water. This adulterer could have living water that overflows in the ministry of that water to others. We're going to see that next week as we end this story. There's no one here who is saved who is not able to be used by you. I don't care how deep in darkness and sin they may be or have been in the past, you can use them. And you choose to use them, and you will use them. And they are useful. Nothing God encourages my soul like to know you can use a sinner like me. Nothing encourages me more than to hear you say, life-giving water that overflows. Because it means it can't help but happen. Fruit will come. There's no question about it. Help us, God. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth. Give us the spirit. Give us the spirit. If there's someone here that's not saved, God, you give them the spirit. Please, God, give them the spirit that their soul might be awakened and made alive so that they might believe and they might worship you in spirit and truth. And I pray for those of us that are saved that we would glory 
in your name. That is above every name. You are the Lord. You are I am. And so we love you. We praise you. We glorify you. Make us your vessels this week. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us.